Hi, hello, and welcome to Oh Boy, the podcast presented by Man Repeller. I'm your host, Jay Bume, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but today's guest is Gloria Steinem. Before we get into it, I want to say thank you to everyone that has been listening to this podcast. It's been almost a year since we started, and I've had so many amazing conversations with so many inspiring people. The folks at Man Repeller work really hard to make this happen, and I want to thank them for believing in me to do this right. Every so often, I write down a dream list of guests for the show, knowing that it's a long shot, and somehow, Gloria Steinem said yes and ended up in my kitchen. Spending time with her is something I'll never forget. She was this unreal mix of power, humbleness, and kindness, combined with a great sense of humor. I'm sure she's done thousands of interviews and been asked the same questions countless times, and she was still game to talk openly and honestly with me. We spent a lot of time talking about her most recent book, My Life on the Road, which I cannot recommend enough. It's such an incredible read. You should definitely check it out if you haven't already. At the beginning of the interview, we talk about her dad, who she writes about extensively in the book. He was this amazing character who kept Gloria and her family on an unending road trip throughout her early years, seemingly figuring it out as he went along. Later in the interview, we talk about her work with Dorothy Pittman Hughes, the activist and author who is also a co-founder of Ms. Magazine. Okay, this is the most I've ever talked in an intro, and I don't want to take up any more time, so let's get into it. I love the book so much. I Also, I love a good road story. So um, one of the most amazing things to me was um, just like the, the concept of you spending all your early years on the, on the road so much. What, what was that like? Well, of course, our childhood seemed normal to us. Yeah. Though I did occasionally go to the movies and understand that people lived a different way. They lived in houses. Right. <laughs> right. Well, uh, I mean, what do you think that constant kind of like travel and motion did for you? Um, I suppose it made me accustomed to a certain kind of adventure or insecurity. Mm-hmm. So in retrospect, even though at the time I wanted to be like other kids, right. you long for something you don't have or, or to just simply to be like the other kids. Right. But in retrospect, I really value it because it taught me to live in, in the moment, right. which otherwise I wouldn't do. I would be living in the future. <laughs> uh, it T- certainly taught me to live with insecurity. My right. father was a great teacher of that lesson. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the stories that you like tell about your father, he just sounds like, um, he sounds like a compassionate character from a Coen Brothers film. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> that's just that's like, an interesting <laughs> description, right? I, I feel like that, you know, they don't make him like that anymore. He maybe could afford to be who he was because he grew up in a very secure family, oh, okay. a very upper middle class family. My mother, who grew up in a family with much less money, Mm -hmm. was constantly worried about paying the bills. (laughs) Right. So he, he, okay, I get it. So like he kind of had like maybe like a higher ledge to jump off of. Yeah. In a a way, it wasn't like, you know, hard scrabble from the bottom up. No, no, it definitely wasn't because his parents had come here as refugees Mm -hmm. and they put a great premium on having a a secure life because they did not. And I think he was profoundly bored by that. Mm -hmm. So he went to the opposite extreme. But his great characteristic was he always had a dream. Yeah. And uh, it might be absurd. (laughs) Yeah. No, but I mean, it's, it's, I mean, you know, what was that part where you're writing about like the slogans that he would come up with, the advertising slogans? Right. They're so good. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I, I, I don't know about you can bet your bottom dollar on Scott Tissue. <laughs> <laughs> or no, what was the one? It was like gold link, uh, like yeah, the strongest no, it was, chain. If you're, if you're a chain smoker, make yeah. every link old gold. Of course, nobody wants to admit they're a chain smoker. <laughs> I, I, I wish I could have replicated in the book his business stationery, which I have framed over my desk, which I describe, you know. But yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's like tagboard paper and a three-inch, at least a three-inch, uh, you know, stripe across the f- <laughs> top <laughs> with it, letters dropped out like uh, dynamite, you know, like exploding. <laughs> it's dynamite. That's so good. <laughs> I've, I've never had, somebody gave me a shirt that said it's dynamite. I didn't have the nerve to wear it. Oh, not even like around the house? <laughs> no. <laughs> there, there's a quote in the intro. Um, I forget who you attributed it to, but it says, um, hate generalizes, love oh, That's specifies. Robin Morgan. Robin Morgan. I love that quote. And you say yeah. that the road specifies. Like, how so? It forces you to look at detail in the moment. It's the very opposite of, as I just got up in this, this morning and was thinking while I listened to television, generalizing about the American people, which right. drives me crazy. Right. So it is the extreme opposite of that, mm-hmm. because it's not the American people. It's Irving you're talking to at the moment, right. who came here three years ago from Poland, who, you know, I mean, it's, it's the specificity of it. And, of course, there's shared humanity, mm-hmm. but I don't think that you can treat people like a glob <laughs> of of generality right. and really understand them because we all have stories we all have unique stories and it uh, the road certainly teaches you to to listen to people's stories but doesn't that also kind of unite us because we all have unique stories yes no we're two things at once right. it's, it's never one right it's unique and universal right i mean i've spent a lot of time traveling around the country you know on tour literally, you know, relying on the kindness of strangers, you know, everywhere we go. And the thing that I love the most about that is that you, when you come home, you bring that with you, you know, you want to repay that favor, mm-hmm. you know, and I just, I, th- I think it's a thing like, you know, if people traveled more around out of their comfort zones or out of the places that like, you know, they spend most of their time, I do think that like, we are very similar in a lot of ways. And I think people try to divide us on, you know, these, these, these big issues that really, um, keep us apart when we're more, much more similar, I think, mm-hmm. than, uh, than, than... No, people. absolutely. I, you know, it's very frustrating to me because, I mean, as I say in the book, I do think there are two kinds of people in the world, those mm-hmm. who divide everything into two and those who don't. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, two is the beginning of a hierarchy. Right. And it's just wrong. It just keeps you from appreciating the subtlety and the nuance and the story and the particularity uh, and the shared humanity at the same time. It just it just drives me crazy yeah. that, that we put people into hierarchies um, and consequently impose a kind of grid on them, a category on them, that we have to listen a long time to shatter, I think. Mm-hmm. One of the things, you know, I've, I've been living out of a bag for the past two years. Like uh-huh. I haven't unpacked a bag. And <laughs> but we, I, could, I, we could form a club, <laughs> you and I. <laughs> but this is the this is the, one of the things I love the most about the book is that it kind. Of, I, I was getting really frustrated by that. I was getting really frustrated by the fact that you know I haven't unpacked my stuff. You know, everything's just constantly in disarray. Um, but you know, this book helped me um, kind of reframe the way that I looked at that as a, to be more of like um, like a blessing than like a bad thing. 
you know? Um, and I really appreciate that. It gave me some peace, you know, it just kind of helped me to be like, no, no, it's okay. This is what it is. So just, but you have a home though here where we're sitting. Right. And, and which is in, I mean, this is in constant disarray. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, mine was too. And I, I, uh, I, you know, we all proceeded our own pace, but I did eventually learn after a lot of years that I needed to make a nest. Right. You know, that even, even birds have nests. Uh, but it took me a while. Right. I mean, were there were there other moments where you kind of had to readjust how you thought about your life? Well, I assumed that what I was doing was temporary because yeah. I had grown up with this external idea, not certainly imposed by my parents, but right. by society, that everybody got married and settled down and had mm-hmm. children. And that was just the way it was. That right. was inevitable. I was just delaying that. So I lived in a state of temporariness mm-hmm. <laughs> for, until I was past 50. Yeah. And then, fortunately, because the women's movement had come along when I was, I guess, in my late 30s, really, and I'd begun to absorb the fact that not everybody had to live in the same way. Mm-hmm. Actually, there was a choice. So by that time, I realized I was happy. Yeah. The, you know, so... But it takes a long time. I mean, what you grow up with as uh, the idea of normal is... <laughs> there's no such thing. There's no such there's thing. There's no such thing. But it's deep. Right. <laughs> um, you know, when writing about your mother, um, you know, you talk a little bit about seeing her as someone who had... You see her as someone who had, like, lifelong regrets. Um, and, you know, what was it like to be close to someone who was experiencing that? Well, for, for a long time, I didn't let myself fully realize it because mm-hmm. I was so engaged in not becoming my mother. Right. And also I didn't actually know what she had done before I was born for mm-hmm. a long time. I didn't know that she had been a pioneer newspaper reporter at a time when when she first wrote she had to write under a man's name. So it must oh, have I didn't, been yeah. wow. quite a revolution. Yeah. <laughs> and she even became a newspaper editor, which is quite extraordinary this is in this is in ohio uh, this yeah this yeah. was in toledo cool um and she gave that up uh quite a while before i was born mm-hmm. she had my sister you know and my irresponsible <laughs> wonderful father and she she just couldn't make it all work together and she had what was then referred to as a nervous breakdown right and she was in a sanatorium for i'm not sure a year or two i think so by the time I met her, she had already given up everything she loved. Right. It took me a long time to realize what she had given up, what a penalty that was, and who she could have been. Right. I, you know, I still feel bad. About, I mean, I, I have her books. Yeah. And so I pick them up, and I see her underlinings, and I realize how much more we had in common than I ever allowed myself to to fully realize right so i you know i think there are a lot of us maybe more women than men but a lot of us in any case who are living out the unlived lives of our parents i think that's definitely true you know i think that's definitely true i mean i you know i can speak for you know my parents you know they definitely you know grew up in the inner in the cities and you know with you know parents that worked hard but didn't really have that much and they wanted like a better life for their kids than were, they were had. Were your parents immigrant parents? or uh, Their grandparents were. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like I think about, you know, my dad, you know, working two jobs. Like he was a teacher and like a real estate agent. 
and like my mom working too, just to kind of give me like a good life. So I could have the freedom to be like, so I could be, well, what do I want to do with my time here? Mm -hmm. Not like, what do I need to do to just make things better immediately? Because it's like those necessities, those like on the Maslow's hierarchy of needs was already, those bare necessities were already met. Mm -hmm. So I felt like it was easier to be like, well, what do I really want to do? How do I really want to spend my time here? There's a lovely quote from, from Lincoln that's like that, uh, I make war so my son may farm. I he yeah. farms so his it ends up with poetry. I think. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> um, so after college, was was there a path that you wanted to follow? Uh, no, there was a path I didn't want to follow <laughs> <laughs> because uh, most I I'm not sure statistically, but I think a lot of my class was engaged or getting married mm-hmm. soon after graduation. Or maybe the idea was you worked for a year or two, and then right. then you got married. Or was it like you go to college, you find your husband, you yes, find your wife? Yes, right. Of, yeah. Right. No, it was very, very much that. Uh, and I had followed that path to the extent of, of getting engaged, mm-hmm. although to a very unusual guy. I suppose I owe him to my father. <laughs> <laughs> he, never went, he never went to college. Yeah. Uh, he was striving to be as famous as his father, who was uh, famous in the world of music. Okay. So he had become the what was then known as the leg man for a, uh, <laughs> a New York Society columnist or something. Okay. <laughs> he, was a, he was a pilot. He was a very adventurous, interesting, kind-hearted guy. Yeah. And I have to say, the most amazing-looking person I've ever seen <laughs> before or since. <laughs> but... And he was nine years older, so right. you know it was. And he had a life and this famous family, and right. I did not. So I knew that if I stayed uh, in this country, mm-hmm. <laughs> I would be sunk. You know, so I escaped and went to India. Yeah, for that, two years. Where did India pop into your mind as like the place that you wanted to go? Um, you know, it's a little bit accidental, but my mm-hmm. mother had been a theosophist, mm-hmm. which is a philosophy that leans heavily toward the east Mm -hmm. and so I as a little girl was reading lotus leaves for the young and so on so I had I had had a little bit of a primer (laughs) had some feeling for India then I had taken a semester course on India and there happened to be uh, a one-time only fellowship offered by Chester Bowles who had been our ambassador to India he came to speak at Smith and gave what would have been his lecture fee, mm-hmm. which was like $900 or something, for a, a fellowship. Oh, wow. Right. So uh, I, you know, that was not enough even for a ticket. I, I went and sat in the office of what was then Pan American Airlines until I think they gave me a free ticket to get rid of me, basically. <laughs> You just sat there, you're like, I'm going to be here, you're going to have to stare at my well, face I, yeah, until I, you let me go. Not exactly. <laughs> I mean, I had a proposal, you know, that I was going to write uh, sort of brochures for them which, <laughs> that that would cause people to want to go to India by right. Pan Am. Right, right, <laughs> right. That's amazing. <laughs> so so after India, like, what, did you have it in your mind that you wanted to break into the world of freelance writing? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and at that time, what was your approach to making that happen? Um, well, I just, I think, I think it was because I fell in with some friends here in New York Mm -hmm. who worked for Esquire. Oh, okay. 
and mostly in the art department, however, and one was an editor. Was this like when George, was George Lois? Uh, uh, he was doing the covers. He was doing the covers, yeah. Yeah, but Henry Wolfe was the okay. art director, and then Robert Benton, mm-hmm. right? Uh, great art directors. So I could see there was a magazine world, but the main thing was that I got a part-time job working for um, the man who invented uh, Mad Magazine, Harvey Kurtzman. What? <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> right. Mad Magazine's the, the greatest. Well, he Harvey had, had invented that in his attic and made it a success, yeah. but unfortunately he did it on salary from someone else, so he didn't own it. Oh. So the tragedy of his life was that he lost Mad Magazine. So he was starting another magazine of his own called Help! Mm-hmm. exclamation point for tired minds a magazine of satire yeah. okay so he needed somebody to help him do right, help right and uh it was a, a three day a week job i think but we did this magazine by ourselves mm-hmm. just the two of us really so you definitely learned how to create a magazine yeah like doing right? all the layouts and right everything editing were you everything. editing your own stuff like yeah, well, we uh, and uh, it wasn't exactly editing because <laughs> our, one of our big features was um, we would take still shots from current news events or movies mm-hmm. and put balloons of dialogue, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. inappropriate dialogue, yeah, yeah. funny dialogue, right? So, you know, I did those. <laughs> I got celebrities for the cover. Because okay. uh, Harvey was terminally shy, right. and he had so much faith in the fact that I could get celebrities that I actually got celebrities just because he thought I could. You know? Right. So I learned about the magazine business because a lot of the people he was using were New Yorker cartoonists mm-hmm. or you know were people who were part of the larger magazine. Was world. Al Jaffe doing stuff for 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 that magazine? You or? know, I don't remember. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. That's a little like cartoon nerdy. I don't know why I asked that. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody cares about that. I'm sorry. <laughs> I uh, should, no doubt. Um, you know, when you when you first when you first started writing and you're like doing profiles of famous people, I kind of got the sense that you felt a little bit like that you were on the bench and you're just like waiting to like get in there. I mean, is that right? Well, Did you feel, you I know? came back from India with a kind of uh, naive but deep feeling that the world was just so unequal mm-hmm. that it couldn't continue this way. Right. So the first jobs I was looking for were jobs with the um, CBS show that was a political show or with the Asia Society or, you know, were kind of more serious jobs that I couldn't get. Mm. Uh, I tried to be Norman Cousins. Do you know, remember no. Norman Cousins? No. Well, he, he was somebody who was a writer and kind of philosopher and uh, an international person. I, tr- <laughs> I, tried, to, I tried to get a, a job as his assistant, and he told me I was overqualified. <laughs> I said, yeah, but I need the job. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's never what you want to hear. <laughs> anyway, I, I had tried to get more, quote-unquote, serious jobs right. and been uh, <laughs> unable to, to do them, but actually, in retrospect learning how to do a magazine from the bottom up was pretty good preparation. Pretty helpful, yeah, that's cool. 
what what, what was that like though when, when you started Ms. Magazine? Like, I, you know, in my mind, I kind of have like you know, I imagine the publishing world to be this like very exciting, magical place with just great energy and minds and hmm. people buzzing about. Was that really what it was like? Well, it, it's not all. It's part of what it's like. Yeah. Let's put it that way. But because I guess like Mad Men's kind of like mess things up for the way that you think about <laughs> the past. You know? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Well, but that was, you know, I had tried to get a job in one of those advertising agencies before I went to India. It was hopeless. Yeah. Uh, hopeless in the sense that you could see that your job was going to be boring because they just told you so. They said, well, of course, women can only do research. They can never write copy. Right. Uh, you can never deal with customers, clients, because they'll never deal with a woman, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. And I had tried to get a job for Time Magazine, too, before I went to India. So I could see that the future did not lie yeah. in that direction. Yeah. But, but fortunately, um, after I'd been here for a while and working for magazines, the editor, when I first wrote for Esquire, uh, one of the two top editors was Clay Felker. Mm-hmm. And he was an enormously innovative and smart and uh, wonderful editor who just loved ideas, you know, you would tell him anything just to interest him. You would tell him about your grandmother's sex life, anything, <laughs> just you know, because he was so, you know, if his interest strayed, you mm-hmm. know, you were sunk, but if you right. could keep him interested. Yeah. Um, and he had been editing after Esquire, uh, the old Herald Tribune had a Sunday magazine called New York. Mm. When the Herald Tribune folded, he decided to start a New York magazine, which was really the first of the city magazines, which yeah. now most cities have. And I lo- I, this is like the only, that's one of the only magazines I still subscribe to, is New York Magazine. Yeah, it still has you know? a lot of its uh, original spirit. Yeah. And he brought together uh, writers, because he was a, a good editor, writers liked to work for him. Mm-hmm. So he had Tom Wolfe and Jimmy Breslin and uh, Dick Schapp and... I don't know, lots, yeah. lots of people, and and me. I was, because <laughs> I, he had edited me at Esquire. Right. So I was the girl writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we spent months and months and months doing what we called tap dancing for rich people because we had to raise the money totally. to start the yep. magazine. That's exactly what right. it is, yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was fun. You know, it was, it was just... Um, so full of adventure and ideas, uh, you know. <laughs> first, first we were going to call it the Moon because Tom Wolfe had the idea that we could rent trucks <laughs> and put on the side the Moon is out and just pay them to drive somewhat over the speed limit. Yes, yeah. a mode <laughs> mode of advertising, <laughs> which they now do for advertising. You do see really? that every once in a while. Trucks. There really? are trucks that just have billboards on them that drive around. <laughs> I, yes, that happens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's no different than the planes that fly at the beach with the banners, you know? Oh, right, right. I've rented those for friends' oh, really? for birthdays. Yes, those are great birthdays. That's presents. an amazing birthday present. <laughs> Unless you just have to make sure that they're looking at the right moment. <laughs> True. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was, it was fun and um, full of emergencies and craziness. And mm-hmm. the first issue... Uh, <laughs> first issues have some kind of death wish I don't know that you know you put so much energy into them and the, uh, I remember that I had done 
an article about Ho Chi Minh, mm-hmm. about, because I had figured out, I mean, when I was living in India, I had read Ho Chi Minh's poetry, and I thought, this is not such a bad guy. You know? Right. So, so I, had, I had the misfortune of being on the wrong side of a major war. <laughs> well, no, but you talk about, like, uh, was it a cab driver you had who said that, like, you know, he was the guy that was fighting with us, you know? This, this no, that was a guy I met in a lunch counter. In a yes. lunch counter, yeah. Right. No, and he was in, yeah. the, in the days of OSS. Mm-hmm. He had, uh, because obviously we were both fighting the Japanese, and he had worked with uh, U.S. troops and rescued pilots who were downed in the jungle and so on. Uh, and he was a, a national leader, but unfortunately, this country treated him as if he were an agent of uh, communist Russia or something, yeah. <laughs> which I don't think he was. Uh, so I, I, in my uh, naive <laughs> way, thought perhaps people would like him better if they understood that he loved New York and mm-hmm. that he had lived here once. Right. So I had researched as best I could and wrote this long, long article which was then reduced to about a fifth of its size by the disaster of the first issue. <laughs> yeah, but what, did the, did they ever didn't they republish it like in full? I don't think so. Oh, okay. Yeah, maybe I'm thinking of something so. else. Okay. I don't think so. But it was a memorable, great experience though because um, <laughs> I was trying to fact check with the enemy basically, <laughs> and so I had sent a Western Union telegram of right. the era. Um, to Ho Chi Minh, Hanoi City. <laughs> so, and I can remember the Western Union operator saying, honey, do you know the street address in Hanoi? I said, yeah. no. <laughs> uh, the palace? Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> I didn't get an answer, incidentally. Yeah. Talking about the times that you were traveling, when you first started to travel and go visit campuses and give talks with uh, Dorothy, um, you know, you, you, you mentioned that, um, that she had a baby and she decided to travel less. And, you know, how, how did that make you feel? Because I, I know it's a thing a lot of driven women ask themselves, like foregoing one for the other. Well, uh, it wasn't quite that for Dorothy, I think, because okay. she already had a very complicated political and, and uh, organizing life here mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in Harlem because she was running a child care center, one of the first as we always said, multiracial, non-racist. <laughs> That's where you guys met, right? Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, so she she was doing that anyway and, and not fully engaged in our speaking engagements, okay. though, though we, we did it and we, we had a good time. Mm-hmm. But she had other kids too. So. Okay. But for a while we took the baby with us, yeah. which was kind of great because people were thoroughly convinced we had this baby on our own. Which now we could have, of course, but right. in those days that we couldn't. No, I mean, I just ask because I know I have a lot of friends that, you know, are kind of going through that thing where they're, you know, what which path do I follow? Like, do I, you know, and why does it have to be one or the other, mm-hmm. you know? No, it shouldn't have to be one or the other, and this country is crazy in that regard because we're the only major democracy in the world without some national system of right. child care. Right. And without really guaranteed time off for, for both parents and parental leave and so on. It's crazy. But I, I do think we also ourselves, in, in addition to the government missing mm-hmm. the boat, yeah. I think we sometimes miss the boat by failing to understand that you can take kids with you. Yeah. 
and that that's really the original way of child rearing. Uh, I mean, that's how you experienced it, right? Yeah, yeah, right. And that's, I mean, kids, you don't have to create special activities for kids. You can just take them along. Right. They just want to be where everybody else is. Right. And that, um, there's some wonderful books about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, you know, just, just the necessity of, of kids being with you and not being locked off in a room by themselves. Yeah. When you were get, when you were going around and first starting to go on campuses and meet with people and talking circles, what, what were the obstacles that you had to push through? Um, well, the campuses were different then. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for instance, uh, gay and lesbian groups were not given permission to meet. I mean, they might be meeting on their own, but they right. weren't recognized campus groups. Right. So I say that just because it's a kind of measure of difference from from then to now right and we were just beginning to lobby for black studies women's studies native american studies everything you might call remedial studies actually Mm, yeah uh so there was always a, a a cluster of people on campus who were trying to do this and were very uh overjoyed to receive us right and then there were always people who were not so overjoyed yeah. <laughs> to to receive us uh so it was less i mean now you go and you're a general speaker for the whole campus mm-hmm. then it was more like a community of fairly diverse and disparate states of progress mm-hmm. one of the things that was striking to me when i was reading the book was that you you seem to keep running into strangers multiple times, like the same people throughout your yeah, life. Yeah, no, it's what do, you, what do you think is the significance of that? You know, it's like reading a novel. Yeah. Because you you, you get the next chapter. You know, it's 20 <laughs> years later. And yeah. You, it's, it's amazing. I, I mean, when I was reading about the cab driver in Detroit that you met twice, I just, I literally yelled out loud. I was like, what? No. <laughs> no way. I don't believe it. Listen, but you know, no sooner had I finished the book, <laughs> yeah, and with no more room for taxi driver stories, uh-huh. than I got, I got in a taxi in Manhattan, and I was not talking to the driver. I don't always talk to the right, driver, but we passed a big billboard for a Dracula movie, mm-hmm. uh, and and I said to him, you know, I understand a lot of things, but I do not understand the appeal of Dracula. It's this blood sucking, mm-hmm. you know. Where did that come from? He turned out to be from Transylvania. Oh, no. <laughs> I said, you couldn't have shown up sooner? No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, and he explained to me that the kind of average people living in the lowland, wherever he was in Transylvania, hated the rich family that lived on the hill or the mountain. Mm-hmm. And so all kinds of terrible rumors had grown up over the centuries right uh, you know and that's where the blood-sucking dracula <laughs> thing came from just like the blood-sucking like bankers and corporations <laughs> yes, right? right yeah <laughs> so i said what that's are the amazing. odds that i would get you from transylvania yeah <laughs> right no but that's the thing i think you know you know more and more as we come into these you know we're we're in our own worlds all the time with just being on our phones and you know we get in cabs or we go places and our heads are down we're not interacting with people you know i've had so many like amazing experiences being in people's cabs it's really a magical thing and it's like 
I don't know. I, I just really hope we don't lose that, you know. No, we, we do have all five senses for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> and I like that. <laughs> <laughs> and when used simultaneously, yeah. they actually produce empathy, which, right. <laughs> which individually they don't. Yeah. So it isn't that I want to downplay the miracle and the uses of of the internet no the internet technology is great i'm not trying to i'm not trying to but it's not disparage it it's not the same thing no you can't raise a baby on the web right (laughs) (laughs) you know i know this seems like a general question and and but why do you think it's so hard you know why do people fight so hard when people want to change things is that too obtuse of a question? No, no, okay. I think that's a very good question. Well, Like, why I, can't people ever step out of themselves and look at the larger picture? You know, I think, um, you know, there is, in this country at least, a, a Native American bit of wisdom, which is it takes four generations to heal one act of violence. Mm. Uh, whether or not there's, there is violence, I think that speaks to the power of what we grow up with. And if we deeply believe that our identity depends on maintaining a certain hierarchy, then it's not so easy, Mm -hmm. you know, to get out of that. And we see that now with what seems to me the politics of resentment, you know, with Trump. And so, I mean, it's, it's people who have been told that because they're white, because they're male, because they're whatever, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, that they have a certain right to be superior to others. And it, when they're threatened, it, it takes some doing to get out of it. Mm-hmm. And we don't have enough people who are trying to get out of it, who are trying to say you're being deprived, actually, of other people's companionship right. by this idea of hierarchy. Right. It's, it's you know... It, we have to be more patient. It's one of the things about movements as they mature, I think. In the beginning, you think, oh, this is so unjust. Surely if I just explain it to right, people. If, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, ever, you guys know about this? Right. we got to do something I about see, this. Yes, I certainly yeah. went through that. <laughs> Me too. See, Me too. Yeah. You see young people going through it. Yeah. Right. And it's, it's, it's good, you know, because you see the the logic of change, mm-hmm. but you also have to be um, patient, not exactly patient, but uh, I don't know, just human and mm-hmm. realistic about what it takes to make change. Right. And, it, and in that change, it change moves, it comes very slowly. It comes slowly, but it comes simply. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not rocket science. It, you don't have to most change doesn't come from the top. It, you know, it comes from movements and from the bottom. Yeah. And it comes from simple behavioral changes. I mean, for instance, if, you, if you're in a situation where you have more power than most folks there, if you just remember to listen as much as you talk, it's mm-hmm. useful. Or if you have less power to talk as much as you listen which can be just as hard because you're used to hiding kind right of, you know. right but just simple rules of balance uh work yeah when uh you know when i was reading about the confrontations you were dealing with when speaking on campuses you know and campuses are filled with people that are speaking passionately about whatever they believe in you know with a lot of emotion and sometimes not the best articulation um you know 
and I know that you kind of struggled a little bit with public public speaking in the beginning. You know, when you were dealing with those confrontations, was that you know um, something that you were you were able to deal with properly, or have you gotten better with it over time? Um, I still, I mean, I I don't love conflict, which right. means I'm in the wrong business. I feel. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but <laughs> but you just have to use whatever you have, you know. So right. uh, it makes me a negotiator because yeah. I don't love conflict. I tried to learn from Bella Abzug, for instance, who yeah. loved conflict. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I kind of have learned over time that if you're really bollocksed, somebody in the audience will come and rescue you. Yeah. <laughs> with humor or something. Right, right. Yeah. If, if you just confess uh-huh. and say, I can't handle this, can somebody else say something? They will. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Is it something that, like, you know, public speaking something you got better with over time are you more comfortable with it now i i know i don't die this is good (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh i still have the major what is for me the major symptom of fear of public speaking which is i lose all my saliva Mm. and and i i have all kinds of products that I buy constantly that tell you that they will manufacture so life. <laughs> Wait, so did you sympathize with Marco Rubio in that moment? Do you remember a couple years ago when he was giving the rebuttal to the president's speech? And yes, but I've forgotten what happened. He like, you know, he like, he was giving oh, the rebuttal, he, was trying... he like dipped out, and he uh-huh. just was like... Yes. Yeah, no, I definitely yeah. sympathize. <laughs> Maybe the only time to sympathize. Right, with. <laughs> right. I guess a rare evidence of humanity on yeah. his part. You know, you, when it was when you know the part where you're writing about your experiences um, during the primary season with Obama and Hillary, um, it, I was I was really interested to hear somebody talk about the internal struggle of like deciding, you know, which way to go because that's not that's not something that people people are either like I'm this or I'm this. Not people don't really kind of talk in too the much case about of, like their of of Hillary Clinton and and Barack Obama. They were really the same right. on on issues. Right. They were friends. They liked each other. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, the, uh, it, you know, I did decide in the end to support Hillary because mm-hmm. she had so much more experience. And I do think that Obama's first two years were s- weren't used as well as they could have been right. because he didn't really understand what he was dealing with. When there with. was also a Democratic majority yes, in Congress, in, too. Yes, in Congress, yes, yeah. that he could have got a lot more done. Yeah. But uh, he hadn't experienced the intransigence of the ultra-right wing in mm-hmm. the way that Hillary Clinton had. At the same time, I didn't think she could win. You right. Know? But, uh, but I kept saying, you know, we need eight years of one and eight years of the other right. in either order. Right. <laughs> and, and the woman who was handling women's issues for his campaign and I stayed in touch with each other all the time. We talked every week. And, That's good. And we brought together... Um, the broken-hearted uh, Hillary supporters uh, right afterwards in meetings to try to mend, mend fences mm-hmm. and make sure we were together. Do you see any parallels between that and this Demo- the Democratic primary? You know, I hope I do. Yeah. I'm a little worried when I see that something like a, a third, I think, of, of uh, Bernie Sanders supporters say, that they would support Trump. I don't than, believe that. That that I, I just I, I don't believe that. that. I, I I don't want to believe that. <laughs> <laughs> I d- I can't believe that's real. That's just like what is it like cutting off your nose to spite your face kind right. of a thing. But there there is some deep race sex stuff 
yep. still in this country, still going yep. on. And and there are, uh, as I witnessed on campus the last time in 2008 with white guys wearing shirts that said, too bad O.J. didn't marry Hillary. I mean, yeah, you know, you, it's, it's terrible, crazy. really terrible. And there's still s- some of that that's going to be tough and going to work against her. Mm-hmm. Well, when you're when you're visiting campuses now, like, do you come across these, you know, free speech zones? Is that a thing? Are you people know, going too far in either direction with it? You know, I I've heard about them. I yeah. haven't actually witnessed yeah. one of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, I hope that we evolve ways of dealing with difference without shutting each other up. Mm-hmm. I mean, for instance, once I saw in at. Uh, in India, actually, where they were dealing with Mother Teresa, mm-hmm. who is not overwhelmingly popular in India, as you can imagine, right. because she helps people to die, not to live. And mm-hmm. so anyway, the UN invited her to speak at a women's conference. And they didn't keep her, the women did not keep her from speaking, but they turned their chairs around. Really? I thought that was brilliant. And I saw that once at Stanford, too. Wow, that the kids, you know, were mad that some they had some right-wing yeah. speaker, but they didn't keep the speaker from speaking. Yeah. So I think you know we could use some ingenuity to allow freedom of speech and still state our opinion. Right. Right. Well, you know, when you're when you're dealing face to face with abortion protesters who are just getting in your face, is that is that worse, like direct protesters or dealing with anonymous commenters? No, it's uh, direct protesters. You know, as long as you're dealing with people you really profoundly do disagree with, right? Uh, then I think, gosh, if they liked me, I, you know, if Rush Limbaugh liked me, I, <laughs> <laughs> right, I would be you in need deep hi- trouble. You need him to exist in a way to be like, oh, th- yeah, this is where I see. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't mind that. Right. It, it's when people who should be allies criticize you for not serving what you care about well enough. Mm-hmm or betraying what you care about in some way. And right. that's very painful. Uh, uh, you know, I was thinking about like when you, you gave the homily at the um, church in Minnesota, and then like a week or so later, like the Pope commented. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what does it feel like when these, when like these, these people in these places are reacting to what, to what you're saying? Does it, it makes you feel like you're on the right path, like you're doing the right thing? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not, uh, you know, we're, I hope and believe I'm usually trying to, reach out. I'm not trying to be hostile on purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when, you know, the, when the Pope said, well, I don't know if he was really addressing me or not, but, yeah. but I had, when he said that well, lay it was people, a co- it, was a, it was a, a pretty big coincidence yeah. <laughs> yeah, that lay people can no longer give the homily. Right. Um, I did not mind. I have to say <laughs> Well, I mean, when you're in the position that you're in, what, how does that, res- you know, responsibility feel? Like, do you, does it ever feel like a burden or a pressure? No, I, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really, because I am very clear <laughs> uh, and grateful that I'm part of a way, way, way larger movement, which would have existed without me, right. which will continue without me, uh, which I'm lucky and to be part of and I hope I've but you do need those along. you do need those figureheads I feel like you do need those figureheads like when 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 Occupy Wall Street was happening the thing that made me so sad was like they had everybody's ear 
and there was nobody i mean as a collective sure like and yes they're the effects of what they did like are playing you know throughout the political campaign i mean bernie sanders is, as a candidate is mm-hmm. probably a result of that but you know i feel like you kind of need these 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 leaders or you know not one leader but just people that you can coalesce around well that's who that's can speak for the collective you, you may be yeah you may be right about that i thought that the problem of Occupy was they didn't have an electoral strategy, right? Uh, which they could have communally had mm-hmm. because they had a fair amount of strength in the cities. You know, people were, uh, and even small towns. Right. There was that moment. Which was like a, it was the first thing I'd experienced in my lifetime where it felt like something really electric, where everybody was paying attention, like all eyes were on them, and then it was just like there was nobody to. Yeah, I. Th- I th- I, you know, I'm not sure what happened internally, but they seem to reject an electoral strategy, yeah. which I could be wrong about. But it's felt like, you know, that they could have had a more impact. Right. What's what, what's your what's your favorite thing that you know the path that you've chosen in this life has allowed you to do? Hmm. That's a great question. Uh. Well, I guess live in the moment. Yeah. I mean, because I wouldn't have done that otherwise. And also to realize that something happens in a room that doesn't happen on the paper. Mm-hmm. I was way too in love with books and paper, yeah. <laughs> which I still am. But yeah. I was forced to realize that uh, you need all five senses. Right. I like that. Right. I like that a lot. So those those two things, and also because I've been able to do what I love, mm-hmm. um, I've actually never had a job. Right. When you come right down to it, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is a great gift. Right. And actually, movements I think need a certain number of people who can't be fired. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, but those are all gifts, and I think they add up to every once in a while feeling um, which uh, you can't summon this these moments they just sort of show up once in a while right so if, you know you're kind of sitting in a taxi and with a cell phone that's right, out right. of juice or something you know <laughs> uh, and you, I kind of think to myself I don't want anything I don't have and that's a great feeling. Right. It's certainly nothing I ever had uh, younger. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that actually goes to my next question. What, you know, what do you wish you would have known when you first started out that you now know? Oh, gosh, so much. <laughs> uh, I guess uh, to, I wish I'd used time better mm-hmm. because there are books I'll never write, you know. Uh, I wish, I'm sure I felt I had to please other people because mm-hmm. that's sort of a social disease. Uh, I, I mean, part of me says I wish somebody had said to me, it's going to be all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and the other is uh, to live in the moment more which really took me a long time mm-hmm. to learn what are the things that still inspire you and excite you oh gosh so much um well i ideas are problem solving i mean i was just reading uh online 
a woman who has figured out with the problem of campus rape, mm -hmm. the problem of reporting is extreme because once you're in the system, whether it is the legal system or the campus system for reporting. That sometimes has their own It, it can system. be pretty punitive. Yeah. So she, she has figured out how to make a, an on-site website mm -hmm. where you, at the moment of the, uh, shortly after the attack, can put in all your evidence and feelings, but you don't, it doesn't get released to anybody. But if there's a matchup, if this has happened to someone else, mm. Which is usually the case, right. because they're not isolated right. incidents, right? And and so it allows um, people to gain strength from the same experience. Right. I thought, well, you know, that's totally great. Mm -hmm. You know, or when when I uh, realized that the that there was a survey that showed that cops families experience something like four times the rate of sexual abuse, of domestic abuse, I mean, mm. um, that is uh, common to the public at large. And that, to me, do domestic abuse is a supremacy crime. I mean, you don't get anything out of it except being in control. Mm -hmm. And that's the same as a racist crime. Mm. And if we could connect those two things, we could prevent... Uh, a lot of I mean, Zimmerman, who killed Trayvon Martin, right. had been uh, had committed. He had other incidents, abuse. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and abuse of women. If that had been taken seriously, Trayvon Martin might be alive. Mm -hmm. So then I think, ah, you know, so we could we just have to feed this into the, no. the training it, of not not to keep everybody out, but at least to treat this subject so that we know that there is a connection. There, uh, I, I agree with you 110%, like even right here, like I... The thing is, the, the thing is to do it anyway. I, I remember, um, was it somebody, Holly Near, I think, wrote a song called uh, Don't Hit the Baby, something like that, because she was dealing with the question of when you are in the street and you see a parent, a mother or a father, hitting a child, what should you say? Right. Because in a way you fear you'll make it worse. Mm -hmm. And her point was that you're not saying it for the parent. You're saying it for the child. Right. That the child will always remember that somebody said this was wrong. Wow, that's very true. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Um, what, what do you think are the toughest moments that you see for people trying to make it in current times? Well, it is very, t I mean graduating in debt that's outrageous yeah. that did not happen to my generation right or or just a fraction of what it is now mm -hmm. and uh, you know unfortunately though bernie sanders is right about we should have free universal education the president can't do anything about that we have to right. pay attention to our state legislatures who are probably building prisons <laughs> with money that should be given to universities. It's awful. Right. It's awful. I mean, lobbying is just like one of the, I mean, there's good things that come out of it, but just like the power, the, I mean, it's just, I read an article this morning that like the Catholic church paid, you know, $2.1 million to lobbyists for them to like not pass laws protecting, you know, creating laws to protect 
uh, victims of mm. uh, well, we abuse. I mean, as movements, I think that we're at fault for not paying enough attention to state legislatures. Mm. Because uh, that's always the Republicans' thing to uh, appeal to the other people, like, oh, well, let's just let the states decide. Yes, well, that's That's why, how they never have to they, say their own opinion. Yeah, you because know? they control, not in every state, but in most states. For instance, in 30 states, prisons are run for private profit. New York State has a law that it's against the law. Mm-hmm. You can't run prisons. For, and Minnesota fights it off every time. Right. But most states have that, and it, it makes for... I mean, prisons wouldn't be great, other, but it makes them much worse. Right. Um, I mean, and also, yeah, like, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to get off another way. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. <laughs> Just, <laughs> I'm not going to be talking about lobbyists. Um, you know, but what, I mean, this, this kind of election cycle, you've been involved in campaigns for, you know, decades. Is, is, have you ever seen anything like what's happening right now? No. Is it scary? Because is it just... It is It is scary because the hatred usually passes through a filter of public discourse. Mm-hmm. Now the filter is gone. Right. Because the Republican Party, which has long been taken over by an ultra-right wing, mm-hmm. now has a candidate who came up without the party right it just has direct access through media uh so i don't think we've seen anything like this before um and i don't think that we could possibly elect donald trump but it is very scary to see his uh resentment can't res, resentment appeal i mean you know it, it makes no sense because his constituency needs jobs right and doesn't have enough money and isn't re- and of course he discriminates against i mean he was convicted of discriminating against black families yeah and uh he's a terrible employer <laughs> doesn't have a great business record he cheats yeah. people i mean yeah. and right now trump university is being uh I know. shown to have been a, a, con. Like a, a con he took lots of scheme. money from yeah. you know so the, the to to see people electing their enemy is very disheartening is it is it too simple to say it's always darkest before the dawn I or does it mean like it's just going to be dark? Well, I, I, I Here don't... comes the darkness, you know? I don't, I don't know, but I think it is possible. My most cheerful, hopeaholic <laughs> <laughs> interpretation is that because he came up without the Republican Party, which has become, you know, I mean, ever since the 60s and the civil rights legislation, mm-hmm. when people in the Democratic Party, who were the old Southern racists, left and took over the Republican Party, it's been more and more extreme and less and less right. centrist. Right. So because he came up without the party, maybe uh, the party will, the, the real Republicans will come back. I think so. Right. I think that would be great. Um, so also, also I, I heard recently you have a show. Do you have a show on the Vice Network? Yes, now? yes, yes. Which, you know, their office eight, is right over there. Eight documentaries. Yes, no, I know. Yeah. I was right. I recognize the writing on the wall, literally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's, so what's that going to be? Is it a... It's, it, we've, we've oh, already, three out. of them have already been on. Oh, amazing. And uh, they're um, documentaries of a different kind, I think, because it's not like you know the conclusion before you right. made the documentary. Right. It's a correspondent walking around asking questions 
uh, in the DRC, in the Congo, say, about the tr tremendous rate of uh, sexual assault mm -hmm. there, or about child marriage in Zambia, or about the fate of, of indigenous women in Canada who, who have been disappearing. And it's, I believe, I hope and believe it's the most like uh, being there yourself, yeah. walking around and asking questions. And the correspondents are really very good at asking questions that don't presume an answer, mm -hmm. and also responding in a human way. So they don't pretend that they're not human. Right. right? Yeah, that's great. What else, what's next for you? Um, well, uh, <laughs> it's summertime, you know, summer's, <laughs> yes, summer's well, here gonna, already. I, I, I would love to, and I might actually, uh, do a book that Wilma Mankiller, the chief of the Cherokee Nation, yeah. and I, had started before her death. Uh, so I'm going off to Ireland where a friend has a house, being met, this is complicated, <laughs> by uh, another friend who's, who's also trying to write, uh, who comes from Kenya. Yeah. So my Kenyan friend and I are going to sit in <laughs> Ireland <laughs> and, and try to do some writing. So, it's just, so it, just, it doesn't get easier. It's still really hard to write. Yeah, yeah, you still look at the so, blank page and yeah. think, it, you know, that you, you can't do it. Well, you know, you know, I was at a film festival once and the screenwriter said, it's, he's like, write the bad version first. It's easier to deal with words that are on a page than to deal with a blank page. And that's actually no, that's, always helped me a little bit. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. You know? But I find it very hard. Yeah. To, everybody says, oh, just, you know, do a first draft. Right. But I find it hard. I know. Uh, one thing that helps me, and maybe this is generational, so mm -hmm. it may not help you, is to do it by hand first. Yeah, that's, you know, that's I it's do the more, same thing. It's more intimate. It is. It's more direct. It is. It's, uh, somehow it's better. Right. And then to rewrite it up, yeah. Completely agree with you on that. That's not generational. <laughs> okay. I'm with you 110% okay. of that. I feel better. Yeah. <laughs> Gloria Steinem, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, that was awesome.